Welcome to the Book Collector Podcast. This morning we are proud to present John Windle reading Nicholas Barker's article published in the Book Collector's Winter Issue for 2004 entitled P.H. Muir and John Carter. It is 25 years since the death of Percy Muir and next year will bring the centenary of the birth of John Carter. These anniversaries and the passage of time that they represent cannot dim the influence that they had during their lifetime on the appreciation of books and in particular on the book collector. It is an influence still felt today even among those to whom their names are no longer familiar. For them, as well as those who remember them well, it is time to recall what they did and what they stood for. Neither came to the world of books by what would now be considered a conventional route. Such ways hardly existed when they were young, other than by apprenticeship to the trade or the cursus honorum of academic life that might lead to a library career. If the book trade was the vehicle by which they left their mark, it was a mark that extended far beyond the trade, influencing collectors and libraries, and through them a world that stretched beyond the boundaries of academic life to those who never knew or have even heard of them. By coincidence, both have received this year 2004, tributes that promise to put this right. John Carter is the subject of a biography by Donald Dickinson, and children's books, Percy Muir's last and most important field of interest, have come of age in bibliographical terms with the publication by Princeton University Library in two great volumes of the 20th century part of the catalogue of the Coatson Children's Library. Muir was already six when the earliest of the books in the Coatson catalogue was published, old enough to remember the Walter Crane picture books as they came out. He was an early reader, and the memory of the children's books he read then remained with him. Although born in London, these early years were spent in Barnet, still in the country outside London then. They gave him a lasting preference for country life, although the family returned to London where he went to school. He was a clever boy, usually top of his form in every subject, and his headmaster urged his parents to let him stay on and try for a university place. But they decided on an office job, which he always regretted. It did not stop him reading. Books went with him, beguiling all his leisure. He enlisted in 1914 in the London Scottish Regiment and was wounded badly enough to be invalided out 
1917. As he recovered, he took to entertaining Tommies on leave, and so after the war he went on the halls with a friend who had been a professional performer. Tiring of this, he tried other jobs, but books were always there, bought, and sometimes sold, usually to buy more. It was Harold Edwards who brought him into the trade. He had seen Muir with an already commanding gift for public speaking and wound stripes on his sleeve, cow hecklers at an anti-war meeting, and remembered him when he came to his bookshop. Soon Percy was sharing premises with him in Warren Street off the Tottenham Court Road. They went to Berlin together in 1922, a first taste of the European trade of which he was to become so distinguished a member. He also met his first wife, and it was with her family support that he set up on his own in a little shop at the top end of Davis Street near Oxford Street. From then, until a second war disturbed the book trade more substantially than any since the Napoleonic Wars, the West End was his habitat. He told the story of those years, first in a series of articles in The Book Collector, republished as Minding My Own Business in 1956. But it is worth recalling again how, when he came to join A.W. Evans at Elkin Matthews in 1930. It was not as the junior partner he made himself out to be, gauche, obsessed, because he had a living to make with the boring details of business. Self-educated though he was, he could hold his own with the scholarly Evans, brilliant if wayward Eddie Gathorn Hardy and the wealthy Greville Worthington and deal on the same equality with the customers attracted by the excitement and the novelty that Elkin Matthews generated. Among those who came were Michael Sadler, Geoffrey Madden, Richard Jennings, and all those attracted by what was so evidently a wholly new approach to bookselling, new styles of collecting, new books to sell, of them, Muir wrote, quote, I think I may say without boasting that most of these styles are now established practice. Individual books like the Sherlock Holmes stories, The Origin of Species, Der Kritik der Reinen Vernunft, Gibbon's miscellaneous works containing the autobiography, and a score of others are now commonplaces of collecting with an accepted status. Originally, they were discoveries by Evans, who knew their importance, and was astonished to find that no one collected them. They, he might have said we, laid out every penny they could raise on the books they believed in, and then wrote learned notes in their catalogues to show why they had done so. End quote. It is difficult now, as for Muir then, to single out any one figure as the leader in this new appreciation. But central to both attitude and those who shared it was Michael Sadler. The least self-assertive of men, he inherited a taste for book collecting from his father, Sir Michael Sadler, 
with whom he is still often confused, despite adding the distinctive I, an older family spelling. As a collector himself, in the new field of 19th century books, as publisher, notably of the Bibliographica series at Constable's, as author briefly and to his wry amusement famously for Fanny by Gaslight, and as founder of the Biblio's Dining Club, he exerted an influence all the greater because understated. He had a fine sense of quality in books and men that transcended the conventions of taste and class. He died too young in 1957, and perhaps for that reason has not been credited as much as he should be for the diversity of his achievements. Sadler was the connecting link between Muir and Carter, who could hardly have approached the book world from more diverse directions. Carter was the son of parents both connected with Eton College. His great-great-uncle was William Corrie, the Eton Muse. Both his grandfathers had been masters, and his father, Thomas Buchanan Carter, had worked as an architect there before taking holy orders in 1908. Church and Eton dominated his young horizon. He went to Sunningdale, and thence with the necessary scholarship, to Eton in 1919. Good at both books and sport, he went again supported by a scholarship to King's College, Cambridge in 1924. A classical education had already acquainted him with Catullus, not then on the school syllabus, and interest in the text of Catullus, which never left him, led him to old books, specifically the 1491 Venice edition, edited by Parthenius, and the 1573 Leon Octavo, which he noted was, quote, not in BM or Bodley, unquote. Cambridge broadened his horizon considerably. Among his contemporaries at Queen's were Donald Beaves, William Lefanu, future librarian of the Royal College of Surgeons, and John Hayward, already editor as well as collector. As at Eton, Corey, so now Houseman, became the object of both admiration and collection. He naturally gravitated to David's bookstall in the marketplace, as well as the other Cambridge bookshops. He also visited Italy for the first time, in company with his godfather C.H. Turner, to whom he later dedicated his first book, Binding Variants in English Publication, 1820 to 1900. In 1927, he graduated with a first in the classical tripos. What to do next? In his presidential address to the Bibliographical Society in 1969, printed in the second edition of Taste and Technique in Book Collecting, Carter disarmingly recalled the warning of A.E. Cowley, Bodley's librarian, that he could not expect to live on a librarian's salary. He also talked to S.C. Roberts, secretary to the syndics of the Cambridge University Press. Shortly after, Roberts heard from Frank Morley, then at Faber and Faber, and later author of one of the best autobiographies in the language, My One Contribution to Chess, 
the title A Gentle Mockery of His Better-Known Brother, Christopher Morley, that there was a vacancy for an assistant to Charles Kingsley, director of Scribner's London office, who could take charge of the rare book side of the business. It is one of the few gaps in Donald Dickinson's affectionate account of Carter that he does not reflect on the unusual nature of this opportunity. It was not then so uncommon for publishers to be booksellers as well. Indeed, such retail business just survived the cataclysm of the Second World War. Elkin Matthews was indeed a bookseller who did a little publishing to supplement sales in his shop. His erstwhile partner, John Lane, built up a connection more based on publishing with Scribner's in New York. Max Beerbohm improved their joint imprint on the title page of his works, 1896, to read. London, John Lane, the Bodley Head. New York, Charles Scribner's Sons. This little verse, if nicely, read, I ambically runs. Scribner's, like Lane, discovered that limited editions and fine printing made a profitable adjunct to run-of-the-mill publishing, and these led, as naturally, to an additional trade in antiquarian books. This was the world onto which Carter was now embarked. If Scribner's main business went both ways across the Atlantic, the rear book side was unidirectional. The aim was to buy books in England and sell them in America, building up and maintaining a stock that would appeal to the American market was thus a task familiar from the very outset of his career, and one that he came to know better than anyone else. The steps that led to Elkin Matthews and acquaintance with Muir were few and quickly taken. It was to be a lifelong friendship. The idea of extending the range of what were conventionally considered collectible books appealed to them both equally. Together they ran wrote for and published bibliographical notes and queries, which Carter's opposite number in Scribner's New York office, David Randall, was American editor. They bought and sold books from and to each other. As Muir became the source of Elkin Matthews' continental stock, so Carter increasingly handled onward transmission of English and foreign books to the USA. The progress of an inquiry into the nature of certain 19th-century pamphlets was shared with Muir. Indeed, the fateful conversation that set it off began in Elkin Matthews. It was Sadler again who published at Constable's first Binding Variants and now The Inquiry, which bore Scribner's New York imprint as well. They now added New Paths in Book Collecting, 1934, edited by Carter, to which he contributed the groundbreaking section on detective fiction, backed by a Scribner's catalogue of 350 such books. Carter and Randall next year issued an equally original catalogue of familiar quotations, the original editions of books with lines made famous by Bartlett. 
The Second World War brought about a brief separation. Muir was left to bundle up the remains of Elkin Matthews and move the business to Hertfordshire, the county of his childhood. Carter, left in London when Kingsley retired to New York, struggled to maintain his business while working at the Ministry of Information. In 1943, this took him to New York as head of British Information Services, and he was able to renew acquaintance with many old friends, especially at Scribner's. He returned after the war as managing director of the entire London branch, which continued until 1952, years distinguished by the sale of the sterling copy of Jerusalem to Paul Mellon, the Shakpura 42-line Bible to Arthur Houghton, and Sadler's collection of Victorian fiction to Lawrence Clark Powell at UCLA, and also by the publication of the ABC for Book Collectors, long meditated and now a classic text. But the sudden death of Charles Scribner III caused a radical shift in the firm's policy, leading to the closure of the firm's London office. Carter, though surprised and shocked, was not unprepared, and reopening wartime links became personal assistant to the British ambassador at Washington, Sir Roger Makins, with whom he worked until 1955. Travelling with Makins, Carter vastly increased his acquaintance with and in America, and it was with this in mind that he returned to London. After pondering the possibility of joining Jacques Velacoup at E.P. Goldschmidt, he decided instead to join Sotheby's at the instance of Vera Pilkington, an old friend from school days. Although working for Sotheby's brought out the full extent of his experience in the trade and the many contacts he had established in America, Carter was never as comfortable as he had been at Scribner's. It was partly that books proved harder to acquire for sale than they had been to sell. His old friend Randall, now librarian of the Lilly Library at Indiana University, shared his anxieties, but could not prevent the pool duplicates going to Park Burnett, a defeat later assuaged by the acquisition of Park Burnett. As an associate at Sotheby's too, his position was anomalous, somewhere between partner and employee. He did not get on easily with Peter Wilson, the dominant force in Sotheby's expansion, even though they were at one on the need to extend the market outside England. But all Carter's by now considerable skills as a propagandist were deployed on behalf of the auction house and he has never had as much credit as he deserved for opening up its now world market. His other bibliographic contacts remained as happy as ever. Journalism on the back page of the Times Literary Supplement and elsewhere, and membership never treated as a sinecure of the editorial boards of the Soho Bibliographies and the Book Collector and of the Biblios all kept him occupied. If he never achieved the addition of Catullus that he had once hoped to, the text of Houseman's works proved a congenial substitute. 
he remained always elegant and detached. If some of the trade thought him standoffish, many beginners in it owed much to his encouragement always generously given. When, late in 1974, I came to present him with the Bibliographical Society's gold medal, by now silver gilt, he said, quote, It matters not the metal, so the heart be sound. If variable metal was his lot in life, there was no doubt about the soundness of his heart. The same could be said of Muir, with whom he had shared the honours of printing and the mind of man in 1963. Muir, too, had to find a new métier after the war. Ian Fleming's collection kept him occupied during it, but his new interest in children's books found its first manifestation in the National Book League exhibition Children's Books of Yesterday in 1946. This was all his own work, the concept, organization, and the catalogue by which it is now chiefly remembered. This led to English Children's Books, 1954, a pioneering text. The paths charted in Gamuchian's great catalogue in 1930 were now given a stronger historical background, at least as far as English books were concerned. He also sensed the beginning of the move towards collecting illustrated books, and Victorian Illustrated Books, 1971, was another pioneering text. Elkin Matthews' catalogues continued to reflect these trends. Muir never tired of drawing attention to the increasing wealth of important graphic art bestowed on books for children in the 19th century, reflected in the growing number of processes available. The Baby's Songbook and Mrs. Molesworth, new when he was young, had already found their way into the antiquarian book trade when he died in 1969, three weeks short of 86 years old. That was written by Nicholas Barker and read by John Windle. Muir and Carter were hugely influential in all aspects of the post-war book world. The Book Collector Archive holds much of their most important writings.